This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Evanston, Illinois has become the first city in the country to approve reparations for descendants of enslaved people. But hold on. I cannot support and I did not support the resolution that was in front of us, which was a housing plan that we had called reparations. Cicely Fleming is an alderman on the city council, which voted eight to one in favor. Her vote, the lone one against. Part of my issue with that was that uh, the money does not transfer to the to the black family or the black, black individual who faced the harm, you know, redlining and housing discrimination. Her concern is that the money would be given to organizations that caused the harm. Why are we then going to, you know, give cash to banks and mortgage lenders who, you know, I would say current day are still active in that practice, right? Coming up in this episode of Colors. A lot of big companies have come out with some big talk about what they're going to do to address systemic racism in the U.S. One big company is Bank of America, and they've made a big move, a billion dollars. So we made this commitment back in June of 2020. Ebony Thomas is the Racial Equality and Economic Opportunity Initiatives Executive at the Bank of America. Systemic racism has created a a racial wealth gap in America. And one of the elements of this billion dollar commitment or billion dollar plus commitment is, is to support those communities of color and to close that, to help support, to close that racial wealth gap. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. I'm Chris Core and I'm white. I'm JJ Green and I'm black. And this is Colors. You know, we've talked about this before in the past on a couple of other programs about some of these efforts that have grown up out of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, other issues that have sort of engulfed the country, the lack of economic opportunities, racial equality and diversity initiatives. And Bank of America has started something that's very interesting. It's a one billion dollar four-year commitment to accelerate work to help drive racial equality and economic opportunity for people and communities of color. That's a really interesting thing. Ebony Thomas is the person who is their racial equality and economic opportunity initiatives executive at the Bank of America. Ebony, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I appreciate being on today. Let me begin. First question Tell us what this $1 billion four-year commitment is all about. What are the principles of it and what are the objectives uh, that you're hoping to achieve? 
So we made this commitment back in June of 2020. And I think this commitment really enforces the connection we have to our community, the importance of this in our community. And what we know for generations is that systemic racism has created a, a racial wealth gap in America. And one of the elements of this billion dollar commitment or billion dollar plus commitment is, is to support those communities of color and to close that, to help support, to close that racial wealth gap. Today, white family has eight times the wealth of black families and five times that of Hispanic Latino families. And so um, we want to make sure that we are doing work in the space around entrepreneurship and innovation, housing, small business, and quite honestly, health to be able to support and close that wealth gap. Is this related to the pandemic or separate from the pandemic? I mean, in the, if there were no pandemic, would we still be uh, doing something like this? I mean, I think that the pandemic has definitely laid bare for us the, the, the inequities that we see, particularly in these communities of color around health. And so, you know, I think this is a place that we've, we've had some work in, that we've done um, some, some elements of health, but the way that we've doubled down in health is really definitely connected to um, our response and wanting to support these communities through, um, through the pandemic. So give us a sense of how this program is logistically working. How many folks are working with you? Where are you working? What efforts and initiatives have taken place so far and how, uh, how, how, how are they going? So logistically how it's working, there is a team along with a number of our senior leaders. I mean, this is really at the top of the house. Brian Monahan, who's our um, our CEO and uh, chairman of the board, is really passionate about this work, is committed to this work. And, um, you know, a lot of the decisions that we are making um, really you know, involve Brian and our management team uh, members. So it's never a single individual that's focused on the work. But a lot of the work um, that we're doing right now is connecting with community leaders, connecting with not-for-profit organizations, advocacy organizations. We also don't want to do this in a bubble. So we have to make sure that we are connecting to the communities, those that are proximate to these issues. And so um, you know, I have a team that's working on it. There are folks across the bank that are doing a number of initiatives and work underneath the um, racial equity and uh, economic opportunity work. And in each one of those pillars, we try to find opportunities um, that meet the needs of the communities that we're trying to serve um, and do it in a way that will have long term sustainable impact. Um, so we are reviewing proposals that come in from a philanthropic perspective. We also make a number of um, investments, equity investments. And so, you know, it's those two elements of the philanthropic as well as those investments. So within minority depository institutions where we have equity investments, uh, equity investments within, uh, within small business and entrepreneurship. So focused on finding those uh, you know, Black, Hispanic, Latino women, uh, Asian Pacific Islander uh, opportunities to 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 grow those those entrepreneurs and to support those entrepreneurs, and a lot of work that we're doing um, also focused on jobs and historically Black college universities, Hispanic serving institutions, community colleges, and ensuring that there are strategic pathways for these students into these high demand, high skill jobs that ultimately lead to wealth building and creation. Is there, yeah, the, is there one specific um, example 
of a program or an initiative that you can uh, just briefly highlight for us and sort of explain how it's working? Absolutely. So I'll take our jobs initiative. That's one of our signature initiatives. We announced that back in October of last year, and it's 25 million across 21 institutions. Again, these institutions make up Hispanic serving colleges and universities, historically black colleges and universities. I am an HBCU grad, so that's that's also a critical element. I know. And then um, community colleges. <laughs> and so within um, that $21 million or that $25 million initiative, we're focused on building out the ecosystem. And within that ecosystem, you have these universities, which I think are primed and ready to be able to provide that um, innovation as we come out of the pandemic. And quite honestly, as we talk about wealth building, creation, creating equity, Across these communities, these institutions are um, should be and are, will be leading the way. My, we have my employers. question is is almost exactly what JJ asked. I, I, can you like when you say this? Do you mean are you going to get, like give chunks of money to these universities? Is that the idea, or are they loans? Or um, they are grants. So they are grants. Chunks, this is chunks of big money. <laughs> they are wow. grants to these institutions. Yes, to these institutions um, over a four year period. And so we want to, you know, measure progress over a four year period. So over the next four years, yes, there will be significant amount of, you know, monetary grants that will be given to each one of these 21 institutions to connect students to high demand jobs and employers in their particular market and city. So, yes, this is, you know, it's a, it's a large sum of money that we want to resource and support these communities. So one of the things I was thinking about <clears throat> when I was reading about what you were doing, because I wasn't clear exactly how it was going to work is for example, JJ and I have discussed this a lot of times that um, <laughs> two guys walk into a bank. It's not a joke. Um, and you know, <laughs> there's a white guy uh, who's, you know, dressed very nicely. And there's a black guy who's maybe dressed more casually and they both want to get a loan. And let's say they both get a loan, which one gets the lower interest rate very likely the white guy. Not always, but that, that there can be a case. So what I thought maybe you might be doing is offering, say, well, somebody wants to get a mortgage and they come to you to get the mortgage because they have been disadvantaged. Could this money go toward giving them a much more favorable interest rate than you might otherwise be able to do? I, I don't know if that's how it works because you're in the banking business and I'm not. <laughs> Well, one of the one of the major initiatives that we also just announced is our home grant um, program. So we're we're incredibly excited about that, and that is for down payment assistance. So grants into low and moderate income communities where individuals need assistance with their down payment. And so Bank of America has pledged ten million dollars. Um, to ensure that folks who are within these communities um, have the opportunity for home ownership and that own home ownership or one of the barriers to home ownership is often the down payment. So we are trying to take away or we are taking away one of those barriers by providing that um, down payment assistance grant. So they do not have to pay it back. It is a grant to that homeowner. Mm. Um, within that particular community to help them with their with their down payment. I mean, that's significant when we talk about yeah. removing and and re barriers to success, removing barriers to home ownership. That is one of the primary ones. And so that's the work that we're doing under this initiative. I read about that program and um, 15 billion dollars 
is what you're injecting into it. And that's pretty impressive. What Bank of America is doing appears to be, and I can't say this for sure, but just doing some cursory research, it appears to be head and shoulders above what other banks and what other major corporations are doing. Obviously, Bank of America is trying to show people that it's interested and engaged in this situation that we have in this country right now uh, where diversity, equity, and inclusion is important. But I'm wondering, when did this process start? Did all this start last year, or was this something that was in progress before and it just got a big shot in the arm last year? So this is work that was underway, and we, and that's the way we talk about it. We will always talk about it in that way, JJ. It's a great question. Um, it's work that's rooted in who we are and our values. Um, we accelerated the work. We doubled down on the work um, last year, but it was already underway. I don't think you know any company um, or any uh, one individual wakes up one day, and I hope that's not the case. Wakes <laughs> up one day, and, and we we noticed some of that last year. Right. But that wasn't that wasn't the case for us that we woke up one day and we noticed that these equity inequities were around us and we decided we wanted to act. We had been acting. We had been supporting our communities in a number of ways. Um, A part of this initiative had already been funded. And, um, you know, when 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 our community speaks to us, when our employees speak to us about what they would like to see and how they would like us to respond um, that was a doubling down on some work that we had, we were, that again, that was already underway. So, you know, this billion dollar commitment, the way that we talk, like to talk about it is it's very personal to us. It was work that was happening in our communities and it's work that we double down on and we continue to double down on. And even, you know, earlier this week, an announcement of 250 uh, million additional million, which is intentional to really speak to the longevity of the opportunity the, the intentionality of what we want to do in our communities and ensuring the inclusion of all communities of color, because the need and the urgency is definitely there. So what I'm thinking is, I, I believe you're, you're the biggest bank in the country, aren't you? Um, we are one of the biggest banks in the well, country. I'm sure you're one of. I, I thought you were number. It didn't matter. My point was, um, if I drive up the street from where I live, I'm going to I see on one side of the street, I see Chase Bank. And on the other side, I see Bank of America now. When Chase Bank, you know, hears about this, which I'm sure they have by now, is the idea that maybe this will, I don't know how to say this, encourage or guilt them into saying, oh, maybe we should do something too. And if, because, and then if, of course, if they do that, then maybe Citibank will do that and you'll start to, you know. Well, well that was the point. That, that was the point that I was getting at before. They're head and shoulders above everybody. Yeah. That's and, what I'm saying. Yeah. But, but I, mean, I mean, if I were, if I were Chaser City, I'd be going, huh. But I don't think you know, they are. <laughs> guys, maybe we need to do something here. Well, well, we like to think of ourselves more of a catalyst, right? We want to be catalysts in our community um, to jumpstart work, to lead work, to, to, to sometimes be, um, you know, in the group with work. But the way that we think about this billion dollars uh, or this uh, $1.2 billion commitment is really about how do we catalyze in our communities? Because we recognize that some of these issues, as we all know, these are generational. They are century, 
centuries old issues when we talk about inequality and racism and discrimination. And we recognize that they're not going to go away overnight and they're not going to go away with one point two billion. But what they will do is catalyze other organizations to say, if Bank of America can do this, I can do this, too. I can see. Um, Right. And (laughs) even if it's not monetarily, what how are you using your voice? How are you using your advocacy? How are you using your place in society to have a voice? It's no longer acceptable for any company, any person to be on the sidelines to say, I don't know what to do. There are many companies, there are many individuals that are leading the work. And so we believe this is catalytic and and how we think about this this type of opportunity. I can see the tweet now that we put out. Okay, Bank of America is doing a billion dollars. What about you, Citibank? Just leave it like that. Question mark. See what they say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's what about you, City? But I think it's what about you, um, individual? It's what about you, Ebony? It's what about you? You know, this work for me is very personal. I mean, I I grew up in the South. Um, I, you know, we were the first family in my neighborhood to 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 integrate it. You know, I saw my father who worked very hard his entire life. um, You know, chase by dogs because we weren't supposed to be in that neighborhood. I mean, I've had, you know, two, two brothers who, who, who've been incarcerated and this is all the work that we're doing, you know? And so this isn't just about someone leading a work or the bank saying, you know, this is, this is something we're going to do in response to what we see. It is a part of who we are and our core values. And, you know, we want to have people involved in leading the work who understand it, who understand the community, who have empathy, and quite honestly, who have um, some cultural connections to all the issues in which we are trying to address. You know, I was going to save this and and do this with JJ after we finished our conversation, but this kind of fits in right now since you're talking about trying to get other companies. Uh, So a a group of um, Black-owned broadcasters or media companies took out a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal. Did you happen to see it? Ebony, or I'll, I'm going to read a little bit of it to you. You did see it? I did, but please read. I would love to, yeah, sure. you know, from what okay, you so captured. It's, it's a full page ad in the mm-hmm. A part of the Wall Street Journal. I don't know how much that costs, but it's not cheap. It says in huge print, General Motors CEO Mary Barra refuses to sit down with Black-owned media companies. Mary Barra, why? We're seriously offended watching you stand on stage after the death of George Floyd saying Black Lives Matter when you have refused to acknowledge us and you have consistently over time and multiple requests refused to take a meeting with the largest Black-owned media companies in America. Mary, the very definition of systematic racism is when you are ignored, excluded, and you don't have true economic inclusion. Exactly your point. And this is signed by um, uh, Allen Media Group, uh, Black Enterprise, Ice Cube, um, (laughs) the CEO of Central City Productions, Ebony Media. You don't know that, do you? No, not that Ebony. (laughs) Uh, And uh, uh, Urban Edge Networks and New Vision Media Company. So it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven companies. And it's a full, it goes on. I don't need to read the rest of it. But I mean, calling her out in the, you know, like, Mary, why? Is, boy, you talk about smack upside the head. And, you know, I I don't know anything more about it than that. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to throw shade on people because I don't know what was going on. But. 
it's exactly the thing you're talking about, or you want this to bleed over into other organizations, not just banks. Right. And, I, and I'm not that familiar with that, um, the, you know, all of the, the behind the scenes. But, you know, here's what I say is that, again, it goes back to not being on the sidelines in whatever shape, form or fashion. I think when we talk about, you know, race, the work around racial equity and, and economic opportunity, it's, you know, do we have the right uh, leaders in our organization? Uh, do we have the right strategy in our organization that we are focused on uh, communities of color? Um, when we are talking about, you know, who do we, you know, have connections and and uh, business with? Bank of America has been on the billion dollar roundtable for um, since the billion dollar roundtable began, which is around supplier diversity and our commitment to focusing on uh, diverse suppliers and ensuring that they have a seat at our table. And so I think that's, you know, it again. This is when we talk about this isn't new. This isn't a new strategy. This isn't something we've done in response. But it's about who we are and and. But we also want to demonstrate um, the depth of it and the commitment to it through intentional resource alignment. And so that that's what's going to be important, that that not only companies talk about it, but they actually show up and then um, they they do something, whether it be monetarily or through their voice. You know, yeah, this is something that Chris and I you know, have engaged on. We've, we've said this several times before, but I specifically have a phrase for scenarios like this, and that is um, <laughs> noble objectives, but suspicious motives. I mean, you find, and one of the things we do on this program is we don't pull punches. We don't uh, pretend. I to. know. I listen to you guys. I love it. Yeah, we, we don't <laughs> pussyfoot around. <laughs> There's no point in that. I mean, what we know, do let's, is let's, get let's right to the right. point of the heart of the matter here. And what you're talking about here with this ad, Chris, is this company and this the CEO just got called out. And some of the people involved, Byron Allen is no, he's not an unknown. <laughs> I mean, and some of the other people that are involved in this, they know what the history of this is. And I know, as an African-American journalist, what the history of not having a seat at the table or being one of a few or the first to have a seat at the table. There is a problem that we have in this country when it comes to how we engage with this. And oftentimes people engage thinking that we're not smart enough to figure out what they're doing. They're Mm -hmm. engaging. Mm -hmm. Are they really engaging? Yeah. yeah, and I look. I look. The, the CEO of every organization is sets the tone, and I think that's really important about how our organization responds. I mean, I think about Brian. I'll bring it back to B of A. You know, he chairs our Global Diversity and Inclusion Council um, a- across the globe. I mean, at Brian at the top, not someone else, not his. Uh, you know, a liaison on his team, but Brian. And I think that speaks volumes about who he is and what his commitments are. When you think about, you know, 50% of our management team is diverse, you know, 40% of our workforce are people of color, you know, 13% Black, you know, 17 Hispanic Latino. We mirror the community in which we serve. And when you mirror the community in which you serve, that means uh, you work with companies who mirror that, you support your communities that mirror that, um, and and your clients understand that that's that's what's important to you. And so it, I think all of that is important. And it goes back to not just saying the words, but do you live those words in, in the company and the organizations in which you lead? I wanted to ask um, before we got out of time, you earlier talked about your, your background, your family, some of the stuff you and your family went through uh, in your in your formative years when you were growing up. 
I wanted to talk a little bit about that, but I wanted to start with this question. One of the things when I went to uh, Bank of America to talk to them about what they were doing, the thing came up this way. It was said, here's what we're doing. And Ebony Thomas is driving all of this. So my question is, how did that happen? Where did you, <laughs> where did, were you involved in this process that you mentioned a little earlier that was already underway? Or were you somewhere else doing something else or doing something similar to this? And somebody said, hey, this is the perfect person for this. How did that happen? Well, let me just, a really quick story. I mean, again, I, I went to, I'm a historically black college grad alum. So I love making sure people understand that I went to North Carolina A&T State University. The Aggies. I, I, I'm an Aggie, Aggie pride. And yes. the Rattlers. And <laughs> I went to school to be a teacher because that's what I saw. And quite often when we talk about communities of color, you become what you see. Um, and it's hard to become something that you don't see. And I didn't see bankers in my community. I didn't see, you know, executives and professionals in my community. What I saw were teachers who were doing amazing jobs, um, creating pathways for students to success. And so when I got to A&T, that's what I thought I wanted to do. And so through a, a number of career opportunities that led me to Bank of America, where I was in uh, human resources, leading a lot of our work on diversity recruiting, a, lead of, a lot of our work on external partnerships and, and, and doing a lot of that work. It was a great caveat. It was a perfect segue for me to come into this role. I had been doing diversity and inclusion work, doing a lot with external partnerships, a, a lot with, within the uh, philanthropic organizations. I had worked within our markets, which is the cornerstone of who we are and how we make uh, a big company like Bank of America feel very local. So I had... I would say acquired all of the skills over the course of my career that when the announcement was made, I think that the moment of for me was, you know, getting the phone call to say, yes, we, we love for you and we want you to lead this work. And I think all of that experience from A&T up until that moment had prepared me for this great role. You know, just what you said about it, you didn't see a lot of bankers. Um, are there, we, we've talked before, JJ, about uh, food deserts. There are no mm -hmm. grocery stores in certain parts of town. Yep. And so people don't have access to fresh fresh uh, fruits and vegetables and so on. Are there bank deserts as well, uh, Ebony, where, where there just aren't banks in some parts of town, which would therefore make it more difficult for people to use banks and to be known and to, as you say, to see bankers of color, you know, that look like them in their neighborhood? I mean, we're in 91 markets across the U.S. I mean, you think about 91 markets. So take, you know, suburban markets, uh, rural markets, uh, urban and suburban, like we're in 91 markets. So we are very much visible. And I think that, you know, and the progress but, but, of that you, over time. But I guess what I'm asking, it's not how many markets you're in. It's are your banks located uh, in areas that are predominantly African-American or minority, or are they all centralized? I mean, I, I know that one bank tends to attract another and their whole cluster of them in a few blocks. Got it. Yes, they are represented across a multitude of our communities. And again, because our workforce reflects our community and so do our banking and financial center. So, you know, to answer your question, um, you know, we are in the communities in which we serve. And that means communities, all communities of color, whether they're Black, Hispanic, Asian, Pacific Islander, we are in those communities. Before we go, Ms. Thomas, 
I want to hear your thoughts briefly about this Asian Pacific hate spree that's going on, which is, well, it, it's it's ridiculous. Um, mm-hmm. On top of the Black Lives Matter movement from last summer, which is continuing, on top of all of the other things that, that haven't exploded yet onto the scene, because many many situations are brewing because of 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 the pandemic, a lot of people and a lot of situations have been pushed to the brink, and people are doing things. I'm not giving anyone any excuse because nobody has the right to go out and attack anybody, whether it's verbal, physical, or or otherwise. Or, or otherwise. But a lot of people have done that during this extraordinary pandemic uh, situation that we've been living under. Uh, economics and you know race and a lot of other things have just boiled over. So um, I'm just interested in your thoughts about how we move forward from this moment. Um, You know, I I understand what you're doing there from a professional point of view, but I'm interested in what you think as a leader about how we move forward on this. You know, it it is it is so uh, incredibly heartbreaking, I will say, on a personal level. I mean, when you when you see the images and you see these individuals being attacked for no apparent reason, And I think the other thing, JJ, that also disturbs me so much are the people who are standing by watching, right? This bystander. And I often wonder what's what's going through your mind at that moment where you see this happening and you stand by. And so I think we have a real challenge um, in America right now. I think we have a real challenge of um, how do we feel comfortable standing up when we know something is wrong, right? Um, what is our role in, in truly having a voice in any situation, whether it be um, watching a fellow American citizen or American, you know, uh, a fellow uh, uh, Asian Pacific Islander individual be uh, discriminated against or, and, and physically assaulted, whether you see, uh, you know, uh, my, my black son on, on, on the, on the sidewalk and, and, uh, and, and, on, on the ground, like we we all have a place and a hand in being able to do something. And so I think that for me is the big message is um, act. Mm-hmm. You know, action is really important. And it goes back to this whole narrative around racial equity and what we've been doing. We didn't just do, we just didn't put out words in a statement. We made, we did action. And so I think that's so important. And, you know, whenever, I will also say, as I've talked to a number of my, um, you know, Asian American um, Pacific Island colleagues and friends, that this isn't new. Yeah. What's new is the uh, the media attention. So I think we also have to hold media also uh, accountable and and pressure in that we can do a lot of different things. What we are demonstrating is that we can focus on a number of communities who are in crisis. I think the media and everyone else can do the same thing and focus on a number of communities, not just hone in on one, but really tell complete stories so people understand what's going on and they can they can they can act. Brilliant. That's all I got to say. Brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, well, kudos for me. Um, And I again, I get back to uh, (laughs) the other banks. If you're listening, man, stop putting stop putting her (laughs) in that spot, man. (laughs) This is but I, I hear what you're saying, though. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And listen, I love it personally. I mean, I, you know, the bank um, has I've just had an amazing career. Um, you know, it's it's very excited to be in a place where you do 
feel valued. I am seen every day. I can be my authentic self. And and that's important uh, when we talk about where we work and where we spend our time. So you know, I appreciate the opportunity to you both today. You really appreciate your coming on. Thank you so much, Ebony. Thank you. Absolutely. Ebony. Thank you. I want to throw something out there very quickly before you go. You mentioned in your 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 conversation with us earlier about the core values of Bank of America. You probably don't know this, but Chris, he retired about a year ago from this the station where we both work, and 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 his venture was called Core Values. It's because which, of my last name. Which is what? Ah. I was throwing a bone to you, Chris, and I didn't even know Thank it. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Which, I, I did. I calculated one day because I did it for 11 and a half years and never missed. And because if I was going to be gone or something, I'd record ahead. And I calculated how many, I can't even, like 3,000 or something like that. Some, <laughs> some hideously big number of yeah. commentaries called core values. But, but the reason I brought it up was because he would often find himself in what we thought was hot water because he was being blunt about things going on. So that's a part of what we do on this program. We do it, but we're respectful about it. You know, mm-hmm. and we, we are mm-hmm. so grateful that you took the time to talk to us about all of this today and um, wish you the best on everything you're doing. Thank you. Well, listen, honesty in itself is an act of defiance. So keep doing what you guys are doing. Roger that. Thank you. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. This is the Masters Golf Weekend, and we've got a special segment coming up for you in just about one minute. You're listening to Colors. Hi, my name is Kiki, and I am from the Massachusetts suburbs, but I was actually born in China and adopted and raised by a white American family. On one side, uh, they are second-generation immigrants from Portugal, and on the other side, it's a Swedish-Italian-American blend. So I think growing up, being Asian-American, but also being raised in a white household... Um, just put me in between a lot of worlds. I didn't realize until college that everyone else would see me as being more Asian American. And personally, I would identify more with my white peers. Um, and I kind of struggle with working for racial justice right now. I think that it's easy to gloss over being Asian or Asian American or Pacific Islander or indigenous. And I think that rightfully so, there's a focus on black and Latinx folks right now. But I wonder if there's more room for intersectionality as we continue to have these dialogues. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. One, two, three. As we are recording this, the Masters Golf Tournament is getting underway. And as it turns out, our guest is a former professional golfer. Maybe he could still play a pretty good round. His name is Jim Dent, and he grew up in Augusta, Georgia, where, of course, the Masters is held every year. Mr. Dent is black, and as a kid, he was able to get on to the golf course at Augusta if he was a caddy, but he was not allowed to play there, even though he was a really, really good player. Mr. Dent, it's it's a real honor to have you on. Talk about what it was like back in the day living in Augusta, Georgia, and wanting to play golf. Oh, it was fun. You know, we, had to, we played a little bit at Augusta Country Club on, on 10 and 11. We could go out there and play those couple holes, and nobody could check. 
catches and uh, we could play at Fort Gordon. It was a nine-hole golf course at Fort Gordon when we started yeah. playing regular. <laughs> but well, that was the fun part. When you can't do something and then you want to do it, that's when it's fun. Sure. Tell us about the moment you decided that you were going to be a professional golfer yourself. What what age were you, and how did that decision happen? Well, you never know when you're going to be a professional golfer. It just happened, you know. I was, that's what was the good thing about it. You never you never know what you're going to do until you start doing it. So I did it and got lucky and kept playing and ended up uh, doing something I really enjoyed doing. What do you remember as your, your best tournament win for you? My best tournament win was uh, when I was uh, our first win was in Syracuse, New York. And and Syracuse, I had my son and uh, and my wife was there, and so that was the best time. That was one of my greatest times. That was the first big win I had. Then the next week, I went up to Rhode Island. I told them uh, that uh, if, if I win, I told them if I win this week, I'll go boy and find the moped. So I wanted he got the moped. <laughs> and that was a Great time of my career. That's Mr. Jim Dent. He, by the way, is 81 years old, and we're so grateful that he took time to talk to us. And also, by the way, he has a reputation in the golf game, professional golf today, as being the longest driver in the history of the game. And keep in mind, when he was hitting them long in his young days, the kinds of clubs he was using were nothing like the ones that are available today. Now... Back over to you, Chris, as we wrap up our podcast with Ebony Thomas of the Bank of America. J.J., Ebony Thomas gets an A. Um, just a wonderful guest and um, and good for her and good for them. I, I am very impressed. Well, good for a me. money, too. You know, you're talking a billion dollars. <laughs> you know, that's not nickel and diamond. In. Yeah, well, good for me. Good for you. Good for us. Good for everybody. Because the point that came up and you know this was not to put her on the spot uh, or bank of america but what other companies are not doing bank of america appears to be doing i mean the jury is still out on how much they'll achieve and we'll keep a close eye on it but it looks like they're at least giving it a serious try to do this and and i don't i honestly have been looking at other companies to see what's happening i'm simply not seeing this simply not seeing it uh those of you listening, we record these um, podcasts at various times as we can get guests. And uh, so what you're listening to now was recorded probably a week and a half ago. And, and I mention that because uh, things may change by the time we you actually hear this. But uh, the uh, well, I was going to say the George Floyd trial is underway, but he actually didn't get a trial. No, uh, Derek Chauvin trial is underway. And I have been watching it and, you know, some of it is really, really hard to watch again um, where they're showing, you know, the video of what happened. And then you see the people who come to testify and they're in tears and they're, you know, visibly upset about what they saw. And then you hear the, uh, you know, what the lawyers doing, lawyer stuff. What's your impression of how it's going so far? What would you say? Well, there have been some moments when I've struggled as well, because I freely admitted when I first saw it, you know, it had a very strong impact on me. It was very visceral. Uh, and in watching the early stages of this, one of the things that struck me was I remember when he said near the end of his life, Mama. He said it numerous times. He was calling out Mama. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, 
how desperate he must have been at that time to do that. I've since learned that there is a possibility, very strong possibility, and I think that may have been some testimony to this from his girlfriend, that she was identified in his phone as Mama. And maybe he was calling out to her. But then I think it doesn't matter. The people that were kneeling on him, the officer that was kneeling on his neck, it didn't matter. He would not have known that. So regardless of whether it was important that he was calling out for his mama or if he was calling out for his girlfriend, he was a desperate man who knew his life was short, who knew it was coming to an end and he needed some help, but he did not get it from them. He didn't get a trial. He didn't get a chance to do anything except die on that dirty street in Minneapolis. And this is the reason why colors exist today, because of what I was feeling when I was sitting there watching that the very first time. And all of this has come back to me again. The reason I mentioned that is one of the, you know, they have experts on the shows that come on afterwards to do analysis. And one of them was Charles Ramsey who used to be the police commissioner in uh, chief of police in um, Washington and then in Philadelphia. And they they were talking about the chokehold and he was saying, if you use a chokehold, you only do it until the resistance stops. You do not continue to. And several police officers said the same thing is that that we try not to use that tactic. If it's necessary, you use it. But the second the resistance stops, you take the chokehold off. Otherwise, you're liable to really harm somebody and obviously kill somebody. So, I mean, this is a guy with, I mean, I think, you know, uh, Chief Ramsey, right? You, you probably yes. interviewed him and yes. met him a few times. Yes. I have. Um, and, you know, this is a guy with the chops to be able to say this. And I, I thought it was uh, it was interesting. And then the other part of it is, and this gets back to something that Ebony said, um, she said, you know, what about the people standing around not doing anything? And I guess you probably s- saw the story about the um, uh, firefighter, 26 year old firefighter, I believe, who works for the Minneapolis firefighter. Well, she was off duty, but she went over and she identified herself because she's, you know, EMT. And she said, you know, stop. I've got to help this guy. You know, and the, and the police just chased her away. So part of it is in that circumstance, the police wouldn't let anybody get involved, even somebody who worked for the city and the really with the police. Um, and the other thing is with like in, in New York, where that 65 uh, year old Asian lady was stomped on and all that kind of stuff. You know, you see people acting out of control like that. They're very likely on something and they may be armed. And that's one other reason why people maybe don't rush in to help when they would really your instinct might be to do it. But you know, you could get shot or stabbed yourself. I yeah. mean, I don't, that's not so, a good solution, but I that may be part of the reason why people do what they do. You know, don't well, rush in to help. It it is it's 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 an excuse, is what it is, but it's a legitimate excuse. And I say that because I have felt that myself, and I was forced not long after George Floyd passed away to face that fear. Um, being in a situation where I had to do something like that. And I'm not going to talk about what took place or go into that, but I had to do something and I didn't want to do it because there was this concern about what about me? What, what, what if something happens to me? What about my family? I didn't have a choice. So I stepped in. There were consequences, but I think they would have been greater if I hadn't done something. And I struggled with this for a while and, 
periodically now I still have some issues with it, thinking about that. But that's the thing, the thing that a lot of people feel, especially when you see a violent exchange with somebody, it's fear. And so while, while people need to, to step up, I do understand why sometimes people don't. I do too, uh, sadly. And um, we really appreciate everybody listening. Uh, again, our email address, if you want to contact us uh, to suggest guests, or maybe yourself as a guest, if you've got something to say, or you want to email us and let us use your emails on our podcast, you can reach us at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. I'm JJ Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. The complexities of Asian Pacific Islander life in the U.S. The 1980s, 1990s, um, I had multiple friends of different ethnicities. And um, I openly said I'm Japanese, didn't know there was a real difference. And um, one specific incident where I had a, uh, a friend, friendship with uh, a Korean family and um, their grandfather, I met the grandfather uh, a year later. And he speaks to me in Korean. I said, I'm sorry, I don't speak Korean. He asked me what my ethnicity was. And I said, I'm Japanese. And then he spits on me. Oh. And the anger and veracity that he had was he yelled at his grandkids. He goes, you never play with him again. Oh because he's the one who killed our people. Albert Shimabukuro's experience is a part of the conversation as we dig deeper into the hatred exhibited against Asian Pacific Islanders in recent weeks. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Time to hit the door, but before we do it, thank you to Vanessa Cook, Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Dimitri Sotis, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Sean Anderson, Peggy Byard, Anjali Chong, Ari Isaacman Bivakwa, Jamie Stockwell, Joby Warwick, Jeru Bande, Audrey Hansen, College to Congress, thanks to Mr. Jem Dent, Ernie Green, Dorothy Gilliam, and for the music, DJ Williams, Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Off Shane. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. And as always, remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.